Let's take our Bibles out and let's turn to First Timothy two. First Timothy chapter two. I want to bring a message this evening entitled for men only for men only. And uh, let's pray for God's help as we consider this passage tonight. Father, thank you for this evening that you've given us. We are so thankful for your watch care of us and for your Holy Spirit who presently and continually sanctifies us and changes us more into the image of your dear son. We do pray for uh, his work. We pray that we would be spirit controlled people and that we will let him lead us and that we would not be disobedient when he reminds us of things that we've read in the Bible and to help us to love you uh, by obeying you. And we pray for that in Jesus name. Amen. It's probably no surprise to any of us, but our church is a fossil. And that's not to say that we're dead. That is to say that in many ways we are like this church all the way back in 1798, over 200 years ago. We were a normal, independent Baptist church. And for the most part, not much has really changed. You know, many things have changed and throughout the denominations in the last 200 years. Perhaps most significantly, there has been the rejection of the Bible as the rule for faith and practice. And many times what the reason the church has changed is because of the culture and the influence of the culture upon the church. Now, it's one thing for a church to change because of the culture It's another thing for the church to change because of theological studies and the advancement of a Christian's understanding of what the Bible teaches. For example, there were Christological uh, advances in the early church where they had the early creeds. There were advances in uh, justification by faith in the Protestant uh, Reformation. But those truths are that over time, Christians learn more and more and more. We and what we know as Baptist today hasn't been readily known throughout Christian history. This is a result of theological development. So there are ways that Christianity and theology develops as people stand on the shoulders of those who came before them. For example, we hold to the Trinity quite easily, but hundreds and thousands of years ago, that wasn't the case. They didn't understand that in the same way. But in general, Christianity and the church don't change. They're the same. And that's because the God of the church is the same. He doesn't change his mind on things, which is a really good thing, because change is often very upsetting. So it's a good thing that God doesn't change the way he operates and what he wants. Even so, change is something that we all, as born-again believers, expect will be a part of our lives. Because as 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, we're all changed from glory to glory. We are being continually changed by the work of the Holy Spirit, more into the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. So while there are aspects of the faith that don't change, there are things that appropriately do change. Now, the topic I want to consider this evening is something that the culture would have wanted us to change years ago, but it hasn't. And that topic is male-only church leadership. Male-only church leadership. 
Now, as Baptists, we maintain there are two biblical offices in the church, and that is the pastor and the deacon. And for years, it's been understood that these offices have been are to be held by men only. But things have changed. I want you just to listen as I read to you statistics, which probably are dated by now. But here's some statistics. Almost 4,000 licensed and ordained women uh, minister in the Assemblies of God churches. 1,225 ordained women in the Southern Baptist churches. 200 of those are serving as pastorates. 4,743 ordained women in the United Methodist Church. 2,419 female leaders in the PC, the Presbyterian Church USA. 1,803 female leaders in the uh, United Church of Christ, uh, 1,358 ordained women in the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, and 1,000 female priests in the Episcopal Church in the U.S. So that's over 16,000 female ministers in the United States. And some would say that is progress. That is really good evolution. But there are other people who are ashamed by that kind of a figure. And I want to address the question of, well, why would they be ashamed? There are three main arguments that the Bible sets forth for male-only church leadership. This is the first. Teaching in the church was restricted to men. And then in the qualifications for the pastor and the deacon, one must be, secondly, the husband of one wife. And then third, he was to manage his family well. As part of the qualification for his office. So tonight I want to consider the first of those. God expects certain men in the church to teach the church and oversee it. We know that from passages like 1 Timothy 3, the office of the overseer, or Ephesians 4, 11, where it says that God gave to the church pastors and teachers. Hebrews 13, 7, it talks about remembering your leaders, those who taught you the word. Or obeying your leaders, speaking specifically those who are the teachers in the church. Now, let's consider what God expects, given uh, the passage. We have First Timothy three there in the office of the overseer. Let's consider what comes right before the qualifications for the two offices in the church. We're looking at First Timothy two and I'll read verse 12. The Bible says this. I do not permit a woman to teach. Or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So to summarize that, there are two prohibitions and one exhortation. The prohibitions are a woman may not teach. Number one. Number two, a woman may not exercise authority over a man. And then the exhortation, what she should do, a woman must remain quiet. Now, all of those statements need qualifications and clarification because we've read we've read other parts of the Bible. And given what we've read, we need to, to further clarify what we're talking about here, because statements that are so bald in a day and age like this, those are delicious sound bites for, for someone to attack us with. OK, so we need to talk about what those mean. The first point is a woman may not teach. But just think through your knowledge of the Bible. Didn't women teach the Bible? If you go back to Acts chapter 18, Priscilla and Aquila taught Apollos. He was a man who spoke very well 
and he was taught in the way of the Lord. But he needed further instruction. We can liken this to the kind of thing that happens with a new convert. They know some things of the of the faith, but they don't know the religious lingo. They don't know how the doctrines fit together and they need help. They need clarification in those things. And that is exactly what these two women did. They helped in private. Apollos understand the way of the Lord more accurately. Acts 18, 24 and 25. They did this. In private, they took him aside. In addition to these women instructing this man in private, we know from Titus 2 that older women are supposed to teach younger women. They're supposed to teach them what's good. They're supposed to train younger women how to love their husbands and their children. We also know that Lois and Eunice were instrumental in young Timothy's uh, faith. And his growth in the Lord, as for Second Timothy one and chapter three tell teach us. So women definitely teach. So there's a testimony and even an expectation for women to teach in the Bible. So how does that fit with what Paul said in in First Timothy two twelve that a woman is not to teach? Well, some say that Paul's situation was exceptional. He was having a particular problem there. Some say that there were female false teachers. So what Paul is doing here is making a blanket policy to guard against those people. Now, such kinds of blanket policies aren't very wise. But even beyond that, we don't have any examples of female false teachers that were in Ephesus. Instead, we actually have examples of men who are false teachers in Ephesus that are given to us in First Timothy one and chapter two as well. So it would seem backwards that Paul would restrict the women when he actually mentions specifically the men who are false teachers. If this was a policy that was trying to guard against that. So we throw out that idea, but other people would highlight And this is what we would do. We would highlight the context of Paul's statement to show that this prohibition isn't absolute, that they are not allowed to teach in any way, in any form, but it's restricted to the official ministry of teaching, as it says, and as it teaches in the next chapter, chapter three, verse one, the office of the overseer. And this seems to agree with the context of very similar statement in first Corinthians 14. So why don't you turn to first Corinthians 14. This is very, very similar in wording to what Paul said in first Timothy two twelve, And I'm looking at first Corinthians 14 verses 34 and 35. And this is where it says the women should keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, that's the idea of if she has a question about something, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in the church. So here we get more of a context of when it is appropriate or when it's not appropriate for a woman to speak. The context is very specific in the churches. But even that should be further clarified because the point isn't every single woman should 
go silent and remain silent when they are among the gathering of God's people. That's not the point. First Corinthians is about speaking in tongues. First Corinthians 14. The whole context is that idea. And that's where in the, the context of this prohibition and the exhortation. So he, here's here's what we could conclude about this. A woman may not teach as an official minister in the church. As the people who are officially prophesying, speaking in tongues and in, in, in a very uh, regimented way or we're supposed to, according to Apostle Paul, even so. Women are not supposed to be in those official capacities of teaching in the church. And this is usually stated that a woman may not preach to an audience with a male uh, with adult males present. That's typically how it would be understood. Now, the second prohibition concerns exercising oversight. But that is often connected with teaching. A pastor exercises oversight as he as he proclaims God's word and he proclaims the implications of God's word unto practical application. That's not to say that pastors. That's to say this. Pastors, when they preach, we ought to receive that as that's what God has said. To the degree that the pastor says what God says and means what God means. But that does not mean that the pastor has the right to tell a person which car he is supposed to buy. He does have the right, however, to speak authoritatively on Christian stewardship and debt, because those are topics that God sets forth in his word. So there are things he can say, but there are things that he shouldn't go beyond and say. So teaching and oversight are something that women are not to be a part of in the church, very specifically. A woman may not exercise oversight in the church. So what can they do in the church? Well, they can do many, many things. But what we what the women must do in the church is to be teachable. Back to First Timothy 2, we see in verse 11, something that comes up again in verse 12. Let a woman learn quietly. With all submissiveness. And so it says in the end of verse 12, she is to remain quiet. The point isn't her silence. The point is her disposition of a readiness to learn and to listen. That's the posture. So she must remain quiet in the church. That does not mean that she's not allowed to talk when the saints are gathered together. It means that when there is an official time of teaching that is taking place, she ought to be quiet. And that takes place, if you want to understand it formally, when we have the worship service and pastors are obeying their God-given command to preach the word, that's when the women ought to remain silent. Well, what about a, women, a woman speaking before or after a service? What about a woman speaking in Sunday school? Well, obviously, we differentiate the main worship service and the preaching of God's word from those things. And given what first Corinthians 14 says, uh, this verse is not meant to be some kind of Sunday morning muzzle for women. Okay. But why is all this required of women? Paul gives us two reasons and we see them in verses 13 and 14 of first Timothy two. You see how verse 13 begins with the word for. So we're going to have an explanation of the two prohibitions and the one exhortation given in verse 12. First, the woman was formed 
after man. Verse 12 or verse 13 says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. So this is an argument from the order of creation. Paul's point is that God had a point in the order in which he created mankind. He made Adam first and that established Adam as the head and the authority of his wife Eve. And the implication then is that God designed men to lead. By way of cross-reference, 1 Corinthians 11, 8 and 9, the woman was made from man. The woman was created for man. Okay? God, in creation, set up a dynamic between, a relational dynamic between men and women that men would lead. He created Adam first. The second reason that Paul gives in verse 14 is that Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So the woman was deceived, not the man. And the argument here is from the order of the fall. Some people believe that this speaks about a woman's nature. You say, well, what are we talking about? That Adam wasn't deceived, that the woman was deceived. Are we trying to say that a woman is more likely to be deceived? Like a woman is gullible, she's naive? Well, not exactly that. It's because women are naturally more interested in people and less interested in analyzing ideas. In other words, Women care more about upsetting people than men do. And there's lots and lots of studies about things like that. And their care for peace and relationships makes them less fit to teach and have authority, which those kinds of things often require cut and dry doctrinal analysis. That's what some people believe, just given the nature of men, the nature of women and what studies even secular studies would show along those lines. Other people believe that Eve reversed the created order by what she did. Instead of letting Adam lead, she took the leadership and she answered for both of them. And she answered for both of them, given that Adam was with her when the serpent was speaking to her. And that was ruinous when she did that. And that would then be a reason for women to remain silent in the in the church. Now, whichever of those reasons is true, we could perhaps argue about. But what is abundantly clear is that the reasons that Paul gives for these prohibitions and the exhortation, they reach back far back into human history, all the way back to Adam and Eve. So the reason was not anything close to some kind of cultural issue that they had at the time. It was something foundational. So. That is the prohibition and the exhortation for women that make it abundantly clear that they are not to be in the office of the pastor, that they would teach or exercise the oversight. Now, I began the sermon by saying that this church is a fossil. Baptist doctrine that the church has held for hundreds of years, we still maintain the same exact thing. Okay? We haven't changed. The doctrine presented tonight is something that is like preaching to the choir. I don't feel that anyone has been changed over from one side to the other, because as far as I know, we are all we all were already on this side in the first place. So why talk about this? Well, two things. Number one, there is value in rehearsing what God has said. And seeing the reasons why he said it. You know, Christianity is a religion. Um, 
Or I should say it this way. Christianity isn't a religion where there aren't any reasons for things. There actually are reasons for things. And God sometimes shares those things with us. And when he shares with us the reason for things, he's being very gracious. So the fact that God would condescend to explain himself to us is so wonderful and so gracious of God to let us know why he wants things to be a certain way. But beyond that, and secondly, we should understand that there is value in submitting to the way God wants things to be done. Even when culture screams the opposite, we were obviously tempted to keep up with the times. But for any flack that we might get because of our antiquated ways, we need to be content with humble obedience. And it might seem like a very small thing. But when we do what God says, we're pleasing to the Lord and we show that we trust in his superior wisdom and his ways. And that's where we need to land. We need to be very content with doing it God's way. And we need to have a regular pattern of doing it God's way and not elevating our own wisdom and highlighting ourselves. Let's pray. Father, as we close, we ask that you'll help us to consider your word and to be firm in what you've said and to be thoughtful about what you've said. We thank you in Jesus name. Amen.